Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Genesis chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit." When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This concludes the reading of God's word this morning. Before I I turn our attention to Genesis 40, I want to just briefly thank the number of you who regularly ask, Matthew, how how can we pray for you? Um, we pray on Sunday morning not because it's 
the moment in the liturgy when we're supposed to do that, but because we believe God is present and here and eager to hear our request, right? And he answers our request. He's told us to make sure we don't have not because we ask not. Um, so if I could ask that you would pray for my family um, in two ways. Uh, one, my younger two boys have been sick for over a week now, and sleep is very short to, uh, and hard to come by <laughs> in the Williams home, and I am preaching in weakness today. Um, but secondly, if you would also pray, next Sunday, my, uh, my wife and I, Eliza, have an opportunity we've been waiting for for many years uh, to go on a several-week vacation together um, to New Zealand, of all places. <laughs> and uh, we're amazed we get to go. God's provided in some remarkable ways for us to get to do that. But if you would pray that God would heal my kids before we go away <laughs> and that he would strengthen our marriage as we go away, I would be very grateful. So thank you for doing that. Lord, I pray right now um, to you as the God who speaks and rules and reigns. I thank you for putting me in a church where I do not have to serve on a pedestal. Uh, But we can, starting with this pastor, freely share our needs with one another and ask for prayer. I thank you for building that culture in this church. I pray that no man or woman would leave this place this morning without being honest with a friend or a brother or sister in Christ about where they need your help. Father, we pray that you would not only help us now as we turn our attention to listening to your word and studying your word, but but you would help our brothers and sisters in congregations across this city who are seeking to do the same thing right now. Lord, we pray for our friends at Commonwealth Chapel at Grace Bible, at Crestwood Presbyterian, just to name a few churches that we love and are thankful for, I pray this morning that Christ would be clearly preached in those pulpits and that the men and women listening would not be mere hearers of your word, but would be doers of your word. Lord, we want the same thing here. We come to you dependent on you to speak because we need your word to give us life. We're not just looking for information, Lord. We need you to give us spiritual life. There are things that you will say today, that we will hear today, that we have heard before. Some of us have been following you for decades. We've been following you longer than we haven't been following you. And you know with that, Lord, comes an exceedingly great danger to grow familiar with the things of God. So protect us from that this morning. Protect your people and all those other churches from that danger today. I pray that where familiar things are spoken, familiar things would be treasured and would have a transforming effect on the way we live. We thank you for your patience with our forgetfulness. And we pray you would use your word to strengthen our faith and humble our hearts today for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I told you this a couple weeks ago as we jumped into the story of Joseph, but I'll remind you again today that that Joseph's story and really his entire experience in, in Egypt is probably one of the most gripping examples in the entire Bible of the providence of God. 
It's hard to top. Because from the moment we, we meet this 17-year-old in Genesis 37 until he speaks his final words as an old man in Genesis 50, it is the providence of God that takes center stage. It's, it's the theme of his story, which reminds us, friends, that, that Joseph's story, no less than our own, think about this, it isn't ultimately about us, Right? It's about God. What did I say Joseph's story is about? The providence of God. It's exceedingly dangerous, think of it this way, to move directly from what did Joseph do to what must I do as if the word of God is nothing more than a a glorified collection of Aesop's fables. I mean, Scripture's full of compelling examples of moral courage, right? And there's, there's plenty that we can learn from Joseph's example here, as we'll see shortly. But, but there's another question, a far more important question, that we need to answer first. And that's this. What does Joseph's story teach us about God? What's it teach us about God? We need to humbly allow Joseph's story to direct our attention, first and foremost, to the eternal, unchanging character of the God who ordained it, the God who preserved it, and the God who even even this morning is on a mission to reveal the all-satisfying splendor of his glory through it. Because neither what Joseph did nor what his example compels us to do, we'll get there, are intelligible or possible apart from God. So here's my exhortation. I'm slipping this in at the intro, okay? When you approach the word of God, don't first ask, what does this say about me? Don't do that. Approach the word of God and first ask, what does this say about God? Here's why, okay? Because it's only when we arrive first at a right knowledge of the creator that we have any hope of arriving at a right knowledge of the creature. You can't arrive at an accurate knowledge of self unless you first arrive at an accurate knowledge of God. So, What does Genesis 40 tell us about God? That's the question. And what difference does it make in our life? So I'll give you the answer. And if you've been studying Genesis with us for some time, hopefully this comes as no surprise and sounds familiar. Hence my prayer earlier, just a few minutes ago. Here's the big idea. Ready? In the midst of inexplainable suffering, the providence of God is the only hope we have and the only hope we need. I'll say it again. In the midst of inexplainable suffering, and there's a lot of it in this chapter, the providence of God is the only hope we have and the only hope we need. So lest that word providence prove a distraction, let's remember what the Bible means and what I'm meaning when I speak of the providence 
of God, okay? And I know you just got settled in your seats, but I want all of you to stand up wherever you are, okay? If you're able to stand, stand, because we're going to do something that we've done before, and that is to recite the 10th question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism. I'll read the question, then we'll all declare the answer. Here we go. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Amen. Amen to that. Question two. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. You can sit down. I'm done, right, Josh? (laughs) And I'll warn you, we're going to probably do that a few more times before we get to the end of Genesis. Because that's good news. That's not what Heidelberg says, right? That's summarizing what God says in his word. The providence of God is the only hope we have, the only hope we need. That's the message of this chapter. So, to get into this, how does the doctrine of God's providence give hope? Very simple. We're going to look at a couple ways. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first two and less on the third. So here's the first way providence gives us hope. Point number one. The providence of God extends to every detail of life. No exceptions. So look at the first few verses of this chapter. Because as tempting as it might be to write them off, this is not random background material. You ever done that when you're reading the word like, when's the talking start? It's really bad. Because the first few verses do something. They do something, friends. They, they provide, as it were, a catalog, an index, a table of contents of all the various realms of our life and Joseph's life that often seem to be completely out of our control. And therefore, we conclude completely out of anyone's control. But in reality, they're subject entirely to the perfect providence of God. That's what we need to see. And here, we share an advantage with the original recipients of this book that Joseph didn't have. Okay? What do we know? If you've read ahead, or you've heard about Joseph before, you know, some of you at least, how the story ends. So in the very next chapter, a cupbearer alerts Pharaoh to Joseph's pronounced gift of wisdom. 
right? And Pharaoh, after he listens to Joseph interpret accurately two of his dreams, he raises Joseph up from prison and makes him second in command of the entire nation of Egypt. Coming your way next Sunday. But here's what I want you to think about and why I spill the beans a little bit. This is the important point. The entire sequence of events in chapter 41 and the deliverance that comes in that depends on the entire sequence of events in chapter 40. There would be no deliverance in 41 apart from the events in chapter 40. And these events, which if you just put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute, uh, must have made little to no sense to the poor guy. Later, proved absolutely critical in realizing not only God's plans for Joseph, but God's plans for the entire world. So consider what what each of these, I'll call them sightings of providence. The first couple verses reveal about the cosmic scope of God's authority. Okay, sighting number one. Remember, the providence of God extends to every detail of life. Citing number one, category one, conflict between men. So look at verse one. Do you think it's a mere accident or chance that, quote, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt? Is that an accident? Is, is that a random event in, an, in, in a meaningless universe? Well, lest we jump too quickly to the quote right answer, I would argue that few events, few situations seem more godless, more out of control, more, more opposed to all that is good and right in the world than relational conflict. Maybe some of you are weird and you really like conflict and you just wake up in the morning, Lord, would you give me more conflict today? I'm not like that. I don't pray for that. And whether you're talking about criminal actions by elected officials in Washington or petty retaliation between arguing siblings in the basement, I think conflict often leaves us feeling like God has momentarily or maybe for some long period of time, left the building. Missing. And yet, in his perfect providence, God used the conflict between the cupbearer, the baker, and Pharaoh to accomplish his perfect plan. It was the setup. He's the same God today, friend. He's the same God today. Conflict is always painful. It's also yet another realm where the perfect providence of God prevails. Citing number two, category two, the actions of governing authorities. Look at verse two. Do you think it was an accident that Pharaoh was 
quote, angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, or that it was mere chance, verse 3, that he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. Now, I mean, at the, at the time, it must have felt completely random. Probably seemed that way. And, and I think even today, right, a lot of actions that our governing authorities take can seem that way to us. Completely random, com- completely out of control, no, no rhyme or reason. So, so talk with members of our church who are navigating the federal immigration process or folks who are applying for disability, or folks who have children in prison and are, are trying to visit them and care for them. What, what governing authorities do and don't do sometimes feels completely arbitrary. And yet, what do we eventually learn? We eventually learn that every action Pharaoh took, every action the captain of the guard took, God used to accomplish his perfect plan. Right? He's, and he's the same God today, friend. So, so Pharaoh might be king of Egypt, and Potiphar might be captain of the guard, but the Lord of hosts is controlling every decision those guys make. It's another realm where providence prevails. Sighting number three. The company we didn't choose and can't avoid. <laughs> You see how relevant this is? Look at verse four. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. Now, according to Genesis 39 verse 22, we know what? That Joseph was in charge of all the prisoners. So he didn't get to choose the people he worked for. He didn't get to choose the people he worked with. It was all determined for him by people who at this point in the story seem to have absolutely no interest or concern with what's good for Joseph. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Anybody in this room have, have companions that you didn't choose? Probably wouldn't choose but can't get away from, even if you want to. It feels out of control in those situations, right? Feels, we, we feel stuck. We, we feel like we, we drew the short straw somehow. Nothing good going on here. And yet, unbeknownst to Joseph, right, his assigned responsibility for the cupbearer and the baker created a relationship, in the case of the cupbearer, that God would use to accomplish his perfect purposes. He's the same God today, friends. No relationship in your life is pointless. No encounter you have with another person is, is arbitrary. The very relationships and community and situation and people around you that God's placed you in that's completely under the reign of his good providence. Category four, or citing number four, the apparent delay in God's deliverance. Remember the big point, right? The providence of God extends to every detail, and this one is really hard. Really hard. 
If you look back at verses 1 to 4, there are two phrases in this paragraph that, that have gripped my heart this week. You know times when you're studying scripture and, and it's just like you, you end up just focused on single words or single phrases? That was me this week. Look at verse 1. How's it begin? Some time after this. Sometime after this, and then look at the end of verse 4. They continued for some time in custody. Do you realize Joseph was enslaved unjustly and imprisoned unjustly for 13 years? So when the author speaks of some time, we're not talking about a few difficult hours where he had to text them or call some friends and say, hey, it's, it's really hard. Can you pray for me? Because, you know, today's hard, but tomorrow's going to be better. No, we're, we're not even talking about days. We're talking about year after year after year of unjust slavery, unjust imprisonment with no apparent end in sight. And I read that. Some time after this, continued some time. And here's what I'm thinking, okay? I'm thinking, Lord, why did you wait so long? <laughs> right? I mean, get with the program. We, we, we know where this is going. Can we just speed up the timetable here and find ourselves in chapter 41 and throw a party? Give her a spouse. Give him a job. Heal my child. Save my friend. You name it. What's taking you so long, God? You ever heard a child say that? Hey, mom, I need milk. Mom, 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 I need milk. Mom, what's taking you so long? (laughs) You know, in about 30 seconds. When we find ourselves thinking like that, we need to let God, once again, humble our pride with Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, my children. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your feeble little thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You can't say that, but God can say that. And think about it. If you're at all familiar with the story of Job, the Lord didn't humble that man by explaining the reason for his suffering, right? Or the delay in his deliverance. He simply said, remember Job, I'm God, you are not. You're accountable to me. I'm not accountable to you. 
Because the greatest need in Job's life, the greatest need in our life, friends, is not an explanation from God. It's humility before God. You realize that? And the apparent delays in God's deliverance. All all, all the time in in this life that we spend living in the gap called some time after this, that is entirely designed to humble us, friends. It's meant to humble you. It's not pointless. It has a point. It's called humility. And what is utterly clear from Joseph's story, as as you survey, I mean, I've just given you four sightings, four categories is that God's providence extends to every corner of life, right? The point is that, well, you got four, and then then he kind of reaches the border. No, it's, it's illustrative, right? So the conflicts around us, the decisions we don't control, the company we're assigned, even the interminable delay in God's deliverance, it all teaches us something really valuable about the providence of God. What's that? That it extends to every detail and every corner of life. So how does he give us hope? First, the providence of God extends to every detail of life. Here's the second way it does that. Point number two, the providence of God sustains faith working through love. Look at verse five with me. What's it say? And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. Now, I'm going to try to do this quickly, but we need to take a little timeout moment here, okay? Because I think we need to make a few clarifying observations about the role and place of dreams in the revelation of God. All right? So, I'm going to briefly make some points, and if you have questions, shoot me an email, because we're going to go quickly. First, the fact that someone has a dream doesn't necessarily mean God is speaking through that dream. (laughs) I won't embarrass you by asking all of you who dreamed last night to raise your hands, but if you did, hear what I'm saying so you don't leave this morning creeped out wondering what God was trying to say to you, okay? The fact that someone has a dream doesn't mean God is speaking through that dream. Well, how do you know that from Scripture, Matthew? Well, in Deuteronomy 13, God warns the Israelites to be on guard against false prophets who appeal to the authority of what? Their dreams to lead Israel astray and away from following the Lord. So dreams aren't a universal good. They're not always God leading us, okay? Second, while God spoke in dreams and visions— and he really did, to select people throughout the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, it doesn't seem to be a common or widespread experience. You know, God God appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob in in dreams and visions, but, but it was at a couple really significant points in their life. It wasn't a daily thing. And third, and this is probably most important of all I'm going to say, The Old Testament prophets anticipated a day when God would pour out his spirit on his people in such a way that all of them, all of them, not just a chosen handful, would receive the gift of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. 
They, they longed for a time. The prophets longed for a time when God would no longer speak indirectly through the external testimony of a prophet, but directly through the internal witness of the Spirit. So what does Joel 2.28 say? And it shall come to pass afterward, speaking of the new covenant, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. So without turning this into a sermon on Joel 2, let's just simply say, praise God we're living in that age, right? The age of the Spirit. The age when all God's people have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're a genuine Christian who reveals to us the sovereign plan of God through the inspired word of God. Because it's the Spirit who makes God's word alive to our hearts. Uh, And that word is what? It's a written word that testifies in every place of the one in whom God has most fully revealed himself. Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Dreams included. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son." Christ. So so what does the Holy Spirit do in the age of the Spirit? John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus says, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. So in the age of the Spirit, God still speaks through dreams, right? Think, Think of How did the Lord send the Apostle Paul over to Macedonia to preach the gospel? He gave him a vision where he saw a man from Macedonia saying, come to us. But there's nothing in the New Testament that suggests that dreams are God's normal way of guiding us. Okay? Or that we should expect God to use dreams to speak to us today. He can He may, he will, but our greatest desire and expectation, please hear that, our greatest desire and expectation, no less than the saints of old, should be for God to speak to us through his word. So what does Psalm 119, 105 say? My dreams are a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So I'm praying for more of them. No, what does it say? Your word is a lamp unto my feet, right? Your word and a light unto my path. So if you believe that God is speaking to you through a dream, as your pastor, I have two requests. One, the subjective interpretation of any dream must be tested by the objective revelation of the word. Two, The guidance God may provide you through a dream is not more spiritual than the guidance he has already given you in his word. Don't come to me and say, I had a dream and in my dream I saw my spouse, so I'm going to tell that girl I had the dream. (laughs) 
don't do that and give me a cleanup on aisle seven, okay? <laughs> don't do that. Test your dreams. Don't trust your dreams. Test your dreams. Trust the word. Done with the dream aside. But there's a connection here to Joseph, right? And why do I, why do I linger on this? It's because in Joseph's day, this is really important, friends, God's word had yet to be written, right? Think about that. It wasn't like Joseph, well, you know, smartphone, pull out my pocket New Testament. And, you know, no, he didn't have that, okay? God's word had yet to be written. The Messiah had yet to arrive. And God's spirit had yet to be poured out in fullness. We were waiting for Pentecost. So men like the cupbearer and the baker had no hope of understanding God's revelation of his plans and purposes in their dreams apart from the help of a man like Joseph, whom God had gifted with a gift of interpretation. They had no hope, no hope of understanding God's revelation of his plans and purposes without outside intervention. And if you look at verse 8, the the pain of their experience, that the plight is, the turmoil is palpable. So what do they say? We have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. Do you you realize that that is the plight of every natural man? Absent the intervention of God. Left to ourselves... We cannot comprehend the plans and purposes of God. God is what? He's revealed himself to us through creation. He's revealed himself to us through his son. But because of the darkness and rebellion and hardness of our hearts, we are utterly blind to his glory. We're we're like a blind man standing in front of the Grand Canyon and we can't see a thing. And that's not God's fault. That's our fault. It's because of our unwillingness to submit to God's authority that we are unable to see God's glory. We're trapped. And as Paul grieved in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Satan is all too happy to work in concert with our own rebellious hearts to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So so what's our hope, friend? What's our hope? If if all of us are like blind men standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, we, we can't understand a thing. We can't see a thing. What's our hope? Our hope is that God would intervene in our hearts through the illuminating power of the Spirit's. And praise God if you're a Christian, that's precisely what God has done in your life. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, dawn of creation, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? When a friend finally or a parent, finally, or your sibling, finally, just keeps speaking God's word to you over and over and over and over and over and over until you cave, man. No. No. The Spirit, 
does that. Parents, you can't do that. The Spirit does that. 1 Corinthians 2.12. What does Paul say? Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, blind, dead, cold, the things of God, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. That's a whole message in and of itself. But suffice it to say, Christian, in many ways, what the cupbearer and the baker needed is no different than what all the men around you in this city need. What all the women around you in this city need. They, They need you to be God's ambassador. Right? They need you to deliver the truth of life and death, to warn them of the reality of hell, to console them with the hope of the gospel, and they are just as dependent on the Spirit working through you in order for them to understand the things of God as the cupbearer and the baker were on Joseph. All throughout Scripture, God's been pleased to use his chosen ambassadors empowered by his spirit to bring the light of illumination and truth to a world that desperately needs it. So what does Joseph say? Look at verse six. What does Joseph say? This is remarkable. Do not interpretations belong to God. Think about that. Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Now, why do I say that's remarkable? Well, I think that's remarkable because if I've been languishing in a pit for some time, right? Some time after this, if, if I've experienced the cruel hand of injustice for year after year after year, you know what? I'm not even convinced there is a God. And even if there is a God, I'm not as sure I want to assign any sort of credit for anything remotely good or helpful to him because look at what he's doing to me or rather not doing for me. And yet, Joseph isn't just convinced of God's reality, right? He's convinced of God's providence. So think about this, okay? There's a series of connections here. To say interpretations belong to God is to what? To say that God is able to make sense of the future. That's all he's saying. But of course, the only way God can make reliable sense of the future is if God already knows the future. And the only way God can have any reliable knowledge of the future is if he sovereignly controls the future. So Joseph's very invitation does what? It both assumes and asserts the providence of God. And that's what faith does, Christian. It loves people who are starving for truth with the comforting assurance of the providence of God. So so genuine faith is internal. Think about this. But it's not self-centered. It moves outward through works of love. It's faith working through love. And that's what Joseph's questions in verses 6 and 7 are all about. He saw that they were troubled, right? So he asked, why are your faces downcast today? Time out. What do we tend to do? Let's be honest. What do we tend to do in the midst of prolonged suffering and injustice? We turn inward, right? So so the shift may happen slowly, but, but eventually, before too long, the only thing we're focused on is our pain and sorrow. 
It's all we see. We, we, we completely lose sight of other people's needs. And any opportunity, even the ones staring us in the face, to love them or care for them. But, but, but what does an abiding confidence in the providence of God produce? The exact opposite of all that, right? So, so when we believe, even if our faith is frail, that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and that in his good providence, he's working everything together for his eternal glory and our eternal good, then we're freed from something. You know what we're freed from? We are freed from the myopic pit of despondency to actually see and love other people. There's a connection between the two. Joseph's faith reveals the providence of God, not just in the invitation he extends, but in the simple fact that he even noticed his fellow prisoners' need for help in the first place. So when faith in God's providence is weak, our love for one another is weak. When faith in God's providence is strong, our love for other people will be strong, even when you're going through severe suffering. So Joseph listens to their dreams. He gives them an interpretation of their dreams. And then he walks down the prison corridor with a big old smile on his face singing Hakuna Matata. It's our problem-free philosophy. No worries for the rest of my days. If God wants me in this prison, that's great. If God wants to take me out of this prison, that's great too. God's got this. So I'm just going to stay positive, quit worrying, let go and let God. Suffering? What? What's suffering? I'm feeling good. Not exactly. Look at verse 14. I mean, after informing the cupbearer that he's about to be restored to his former position, what does Joseph say? What does faith sound like? Verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. I've been here a long time. And it's really hard. <sighs> Even though I trust God. I hope you realize, friend, that that being a man or woman of faith in the midst of suffering doesn't mean being passive about your suffering. What, what did Joseph do? He, he used every means at his disposal to try to improve his situation. And you should too. You don't get points with God <laughs> for just holding the handbrake in the midst of your suffering. <laughs> Faith isn't passive. And being a man or woman of faith and suffering also doesn't mean being indifferent. What do I mean by that? Well, well, sometimes people say things like, I'm not suffering. I'm on my way to healing. Or, I'm not struggling. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ. Really? <laughs> 
I mean, sometimes I just want to go up to that person. Just like, doot, doot. <laughs> For real? Because you're the first person I've ever met that where that's actually true. <laughs> Faith in the providence of God doesn't deny the reality of suffering or the effects of suffering. Faith does what? It laments, it groans, it longs for the redemption of our bodies. Listen, faith is honest about suffering even as it makes much of God not suffering. We can turn the whole call to lament as a twisted form of self-centeredness. Don't do that. Make much of God, not your suffering, by doing what? By trusting God that even in your suffering, he is working his eternal glory and your eternal good. That makes much of him, not your suffering. Let's, let's not turn this call to humble honesty in the church to one more form of self-centered, woe is me, feel bad for me, I'm a poor pitiful pearl. You're hurting You're really suffering. Don't deny that. But in the middle of that, remember that faith does what? It clings to the providence of God. So the injustice committed against Joseph was real. He was unjustly enslaved and unjustly imprisoned. But but notice, he doesn't hesitate. This is another danger we can fall into with this whole, what's faith in the providence of God look like, sound like thing. He doesn't fall into this trap that I will call walking around with your head hung low, convinced that the persistence of suffering indicates something is still terribly wrong with you. And that sounds like this. I probably just haven't learned my lesson yet. I'm probably still sinning in some way. I bet the fact that this is 13 years and not three days is all my fault. Well, maybe it is, friend. (laughs) Maybe it is. But maybe it's not. Don't try to make sense of your suffering by demolishing and avoiding the very biblical category of innocent suffering. So if you've sinned, repent. If you haven't, Don't. Be humble. Be honest. And take refuge not in what you can figure out about the reason for your suffering. Take refuge in the providence of God who will accomplish his eternal glory and your eternal good through your suffering. Take refuge in that. Because how does God's providence give us hope? It sustains faith working through love. Point two. Here's the final answer. How does God's providence give us hope? Point three, the providence of God proves God, not man, is worthy of your trust. God, not man, is worthy of your trust. Remember, Joseph didn't hide even painful truths from his fellow prisoners, right? So what's he do? He tells the cupbearer that he's going to be restored in three days. He tells the baker he's going to be hanged in three days. And it's kind of dramatic, right? What does he say? Tells him you had a dream. This is the interpretation. In three days, favor will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat your flesh. Remember what I said earlier about how dependent the world around you is 
on your willingness, no less than Joseph's, to speak what is true when God has revealed what is true. We need to not just speak the good news, we need to share the bad news too. Because everything Joseph said in verses 20 to 22, we quickly see it all happened exactly as he said. Right? The cupbearer was restored, the baker was hanged, the word of God proved true, as it always does. And I love the fact, if you look at the end of this chapter, that Genesis includes this little detail, verse 20, it all went down on Pharaoh's birthday. Why why do I love that? I love that because it reminds us of the absolute historicity of the fulfillment. It all happened on a real day. At a real time, a known time, God gave each man their own dream and God's revealed plan for each man came to pass. Hope in God's word, what's the point? Hope in God's word will never be disappointed. Not so hope in the word of men, right? Look at verse 23. What happened? Yet the chief cupbearer, that's probably the saddest verse in the whole chapter, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He forgot him. The undertone there isn't that, you know, he had an old person moment. It's a moral thing. He did not lovingly take time to remember. I wonder if you've ever felt forgotten, friend. I wonder if you've ever felt that there's not a living human being on the planet who has eyes for you, who sees you, who remembers you. And, and there will be times that we're not given a clear, explicit window into what was going on in Joseph's mind. We can only imagine. There will be times where it feels like it's not only just every person's forgotten me, it feels like God himself has forgotten me, right? Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I mean, the the disappointment Joseph must have felt in that moment must have been nearly crushing. I mean, here's my big break. I love this guy. I care for this guy. All he's got to do is say, hey, there's a really cool gifted spirit man in the prison. Why don't we get him out of there? But he doesn't. And because we live a lot of life, in the gap between chapter 40, verse 23, and chapter 41, verse 1. We need to hear God speaking this to us in the gap. And this is what he says, not just to his people, Israel, friend, but to every man and woman who has been united through faith and repentance to his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to what God says to you, fearful saint, But Zion said, Isaiah 49, 15, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Period. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you, says the Lord. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. 
Do you know what's currently engraved on the hands of your Savior? It's the scars that represent the depth of commitment in his heart to not let you go. And whenever you are tempted to say, not just, Lord, it feels like you've forgotten me, but I've decided you've forgotten me, right? Whenever you're tempted to go from doubt to minds to unbelief, heart uncertainty, you need to see the scarred hands of Jesus Christ. Because this is not idle poetry. The Lord himself literally has his covenant commitment to us engraved on the palms of his hands. Friend, his, his providence, what's the point of all this? His providence extends to every detail of your life. His providence will sustain a life of faith working through love And God's providence proves that God, not man, is worthy of your trust because of Jesus. That's not just true on good days. That's true in the midst of inexplainable suffering, right? The providence of God is the only certainty, the only foundation. Everything else may fail. Everyone else will fail. But the plans and purposes of Almighty God will not fail. He's perfectly sovereign, completely providence. And it's the only hope we have. But remember as we conclude that it is also the only hope we need. Because if you are in Christ, the Father can no more forget and fail to remember you than he can forget or fail to remember his own son. Is God the Father at some point in redemptive history, going to forget God the Son? No. So if you are in him, why would we doubt that the Father would ever forget us? It's the only hope we need. Because his perfect providence guarantees that the eternal comfort he has promised you in Jesus will surely come to pass. So I charge you, friend, In view of the providence of God, cease your anxious striving and trust the Lord who sees you, who knows you, and who's going to bring his good and perfect plans to pass through your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. As I love to pray at the end of every sermon, we we are grateful for your word. We thank you for speaking, for revealing your providence. And I pray as we respond right now through song that you would strengthen our faith in your providence. Our trust that you are sovereign in every detail of life. Our confidence that where men repeatedly fail us, you do not and will never. And I pray that where we are living in the gap, walking, stumbling, crawling through some time after this, that you would give us faith to wait and you would help us to keep our eyes on you 
and keep pouring our heart out to you while we do that for the simple reason that you're sovereign. And as your people today, we say, that is the only hope we have. And because of Jesus, that's the only hope we need. Amen.